Support this show and all the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at $1 a month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels. Heartlandpod.com. Click the Patreon link or just go to Patreon and search for the Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. Our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts, and a look at Heartland news from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This week's stories are vast. Honestly, there are too many to cover in the time that I usually allot for the show. Across the country, People went to the ballot box this election cycle with big wins for progressives, but certainly no nail in the coffin for the Republican Party, whose fascist tendencies are on full-throated display this week in a number of states. Hopefully, I can cut through the noise and give you a rundown you deserve. Wisconsin's Mixed Bag More than $42 million was spent on the April 4th Wisconsin Supreme Court election, making it the most expensive state Supreme Court race in U.S. history. The millions poured in by liberal donors from around the country paid off as the race was called by 9 p.m. local time for the Democratic-backed candidate Milwaukee County Judge Janet Prasayowitz, who defeated former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly. Prasayowitz says, I'm surprised of the results and the magnitude of the victory here. We are absolutely delighted and thrilled. The Protosayowitz victory puts Democrats back in control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court for the first time in 15 years. Many landmark reforms that progressives would like to repeal, but lack the legislative power to do so, have been enacted since Democrats last had a majority on the court. With 75% of the ballots counted, Protosayowitz had a 55.4% of the vote to a 44.6% for Kelly, a lead of nearly 160,000 votes. The wide margin in a normally closely contested state suggests Democrats have continued to benefit politically from the Roe decision, which has brought motivated voters to the polls. Protosayowitz put abortion at the center of her campaign, saying in one advertisement that she supports a woman's freedom to make her own decision on abortion. Kelly, meanwhile, won the endorsement of the anti-abortion groups and lost the race. Many progressives now hope this shift in the balance of power on the Badger State's high court will also allow Democrats to accomplish through the courts in Wisconsin what they've been able to enact legislatively in nearby Michigan, where a right-to-work law was recently repealed. As in Michigan, Wisconsin is a state where, during the past decade, Republicans enacted right-to-work. Undoing these reforms is a top priority for Wisconsin Democrats. This shift in control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court to a majority aligned with Democrats has national implications as well, as it could affect the balance of power in Congress. That's because Protosayowitz's win puts the reconfigured Wisconsin Supreme Court in a position to overturn congressional and state legislative maps drawn by the Republican-run Wisconsin Senate and Assembly. Protosayowitz has already announced her opposition to Wisconsin's current district maps. She said the Wisconsin maps are rigged and a problem. With the victory on April 4th, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is now in a position to overturn district maps drawn by elected representatives and replace them with judge or special drawn maps. Putting other gerrymandered districts on full display, though, a GOP win in another Wisconsin race this week, the state Senate's 8th district, gave Republicans a supermajority in the chamber. With that power, Republicans will have the ability to pursue removal proceedings of certain elected officials if the Assembly votes to impeach them, and they are not shy about considering just that 
with the newly elected judge. In the closing days of his campaign, Republican Assemblyman Dan Nodal, who won that ex-urban state Senate district outside of Milwaukee, said that he would consider impeaching Protasiewicz from her current position as judge on the Milwaukee County Circuit Court. Who's to say they won't pursue her also at the Supreme Court level? If you think it's crazy that a sitting judge could face impeachment and potential removal from office by desperate Republicans hoping to hold fast to their grip on power, all I have to do is point you to our next story out of Tennessee, where tone-deaf Republicans amidst throngs of protesters voted yesterday whether to oust three Democratic lawmakers for simply disrupting decorum. Tennessee authoritarianism on full display. Thursday, April 6, 2023, was an unprecedented day in Tennessee politics. The state house took up resolutions to expel three Democratic lawmakers over their actions, interrupting a floor session and using a bullhorn to lead chants for gun control. Representative Justin Jones, a Democrat of Nashville, was expelled by a vote of 72 to 25 after 90 minutes of debate. Representative Gloria Johnson, a Democrat of Knoxville, was not expelled after the resolution to oust her failed by one vote. Lastly, Representative Justin J. Pearson, a Democrat of Memphis, was expelled by a vote of 69 to 26. The expulsions mark only the fourth time since the end of the Civil War when House members expelled their elected colleagues. When the vote to expel Pearson was counted, the House chamber erupted with shouts of outrage from the gallery of protesters. Chaos erupted outside the chamber doors, where at least 20 protesters laid on their backs in an impromptu die-in. Lawmakers shuffled out of the chamber, met with cries of shame from protesters. Pearson, Jones, and Johnson joined protesters gathered at the top of the Capitol steps shortly after. Meanwhile, the GOP held a press conference inside. This entire situation is wrong on so many levels, from the blatant authoritarian nature of voting to expel three members of the minority political party over a mere decorum breach, to the fact that at the end of it all, we saw overt racist overtones when only two of the three legislators were actually expelled, the two black men. The Republicans in Tennessee must truly believe they are bulletproof in their gerrymandered districts because this looks awful and, from what I see, is only galvanizing an already pissed off Gen Z. I don't know how they expected it would go for them to allow these three to speak and answer questions at length. There are just too many great sound bites to share. A few highlights, though. For Representative Justin Jones, he states, The only reason that I had to use a megaphone is because House Speaker Cameron Sexton cut my voice and the voice of 70,000 people I represent from the microphone. Jones repeatedly said he was driven to protest in the well in order to represent his constituents. I am able to speak because the people of my district sent me here. Speaker Sexton is not my constituent. Speaker Sexton is not a king. Speaker Sexton is not a god, though he may want to be. I don't know how many times the speaker has gaveled me out of order for simply doing my job as a representative. And for Representative Gloria Johnson, she states, I've spent my life dedicated to helping children. There are so many things we could do to change the trajectory of where we're headed. More school shootings, church shootings, theater shootings, Waffle House shootings. It's happening everywhere, folks. And there's one common denominator. It's the guns. And for Representative Justin Pearson, the erosion of democracy in the state legislature is what got us here. It wasn't walking up to the well. It wasn't being disruptive to the status quo. It was the silencing of democracy, and it's wrong. And these are merely a taste of the fantastic dialogue these three brought to the table. You should honestly find and devour their talking points. For example, I especially love Pearson's monologue regarding how this country was formed under a protest, showing just how fundamentally un-American the actions of the Tennessee Republicans were. Hey, everyone. 
I'm ditching the tried-and-true ad for our weekly shows this week that you've heard time and time again to highlight an event near and dear to the Heartland Pod's heart, the Boots and Bling Fest supporting our friends at Turning Point Advocacy Services. This is the last call to secure your seat if you RSVP by high noon on Monday, April 10th. The event takes place Friday, April 14th, and features an evening of dinner, dancing, and auctions in the beautiful Innsbruck Resort Aspen Center, with special honorees, Carrie and Jim Gates, and a live auction with Dusty Thornhill. Purchase a table or an individual ticket, and don't forget to let them know that the Heartland Pod sends its regards. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. Farm Bill 2023. I need to hit this topic more often. The September expiration date isn't really that far away. This week I saw the National Association of Counties put forth their letter to congressional leadership outlining county-level priorities for the 2023 Farm Bill. Their priorities are taking on a familiar refrain that we have seen in a lot of requests. Right from the start, they request stronger support for small and mid-sized producers. Other priorities focus on maintaining and expanding Farm Bill conservation programs, strengthening SNAP to combat hunger among county residents, closing the wastewater access gap, noting that according to the Environmental Protection Agency, more than 2 million Americans lack access to basic running water, and a push for farm labor reform. Half of the nation's hired farm workers, roughly 1.2 million individuals, lack legal immigration status. They wish to significantly simplify administrative requirements for employers, address critical labor shortages in the agriculture sector, provide temporary legal status and protections for migrant farm workers, and create better pathways for farm workers to obtain permanent legal residence in the United States. In Missouri, a number of school board positions were filled after voting on Tuesday. In my own backyard, we saw a mixed bag of results. Conservative-backed candidates won in the Francis Howell and Wentzville school districts, but faltered in the Parkway and Rockwood school districts. In Rockwood, this means that the three candidates endorsed by Rockwood teachers' unions topped those endorsed by conservative talk radio host Mark Cox, which certainly should be the order of things. Francis Howell, however, may be the most concerning situation, with a decided majority of board members seemingly more concerned with stamping out CRT and banning books than the actual operation of a school. Hopefully, things can still actually function for that district. As a nice little aside, though, Chuck Basie failed miserably in his bid for a school board position in Columbia, Missouri, showcasing just how much he's leaned on gerrymandering when he was in the Missouri legislature. Bids for the next governor of Missouri have begun to come in. Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft announced Thursday. Ashcroft may be best known for riding his father's coattails really hard and his attempts to censor public libraries. Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe and State Senator Bill Eigel of St. Charles also intend to seek the Republican nomination. No word yet on the Democratic nominees. Missouri's ban on lawmakers and legislative staff working as lobbyists for two years after leaving office is a reasonable limit that does not overly burden free speech rights, according to a federal judge in his ruling last week. First enacted in 2018 as part of a voter-approved initiative called Clean Missouri, the law is designed to prevent corruption and the appearance of corruption. Representative Rocky Miller, a Republican from Lake Ozark, won four terms in the Missouri House and was re-elected to his final term in 2018 at the same election where voters passed the lobbying ban. About 10 months after he left office in January of 2021, he received an offer to work as a paid lobbyist for Presidio, a waste management company with headquarters in his hometown. According to the Missouri Ethics Commission, he violated that ban. And now, Judge Harpool's ruling further cements that fact. 
The EPA is estimating that Missouri may still contain more than 200,000 lead pipes, but Thanks to the federal bipartisan infrastructure law, the state will get $106.4 million for water infrastructure upgrades. The EPA's regional administrator, Megan McAllister, said in a news release that the funds would go to ensure that Missourians have access to clean drinking water. In Kansas, after failing to do so in the last two previous sessions, the Kansas legislature has finally rallied enough votes on Wednesday needed to override Democratic Governor Laura Kelly's veto of a bill banning transgender girls and women from girls and women's sports at public schools and colleges. Kansas now stands with 19 other states that have enacted laws limiting transgender girls to participating in sports that align with the gender they were assigned at birth. One sickening addition to the bill is a forced genital examination during sports physicals. Kansas Governor Laura Kelly is calling for the state of Kansas to decriminalize fentanyl strips. Fentanyl strips are currently illegal in Kansas and considered drug paraphernalia, but experts say it can help save lives because the strip can help detect fentanyl in a drug. Kelly states, experts from nearly every profession, including law enforcement, agree that decriminalizing fentanyl test strips is a common sense way to prevent overdoses and save lives. Communities across our state are hurting. We must join the many states across the country that have made fentanyl test strips and other tools available to prevent exposure to fentanyl long before it kills. In Michigan, the FBI and United States Attorney Mark Totten held a press conference in Lansing, Michigan Thursday to announce charges in a public corruption scheme involving prominent former Michigan lawmaker Republican Rick Johnson and three other defendants for accepting bribes while he was serving as chairman of the Medical Marijuana Board in Michigan for two years. He is alleged to have accepted more than $100,000 in cash and other payments and did so with the understanding that by accepting the money, he would help those bribing him to obtain medical licenses. Johnson has accepted the charges in hopes of a reduced sentence. In Iowa, in 2021, the Republican-controlled Iowa legislature passed a bill signed into law requiring the Iowa Secretary of State to move all voters who did not cast ballots in the most recent general election to inactive status. Now, more than 565,000 Iowa voters have been notified that their voter registration status has been changed to inactive. That's more than a quarter of the roughly 2.2 million registered voters in the state. The notices will not affect anyone's ability to vote in any election through 2026. The voting experience for inactive voters will be identical to that of active voters. But critics say that changes will wrongly categorize voters who purposely choose not to vote in an election or missed for a valid reason and could eventually lead to purges of some eligible voters. If voters do not take action to refresh their voter registration, it would be canceled after the November 2026 election and they will have to re-register to vote in the state. And in Florida, we don't usually cover the hot mess that is Florida, where overt fascism rises on the daily, but here is a story I didn't want to pass up. Embattled former State of Florida employee and whistleblower Rebecca Jones announced on Twitter Wednesday night that her 13-year-old son had been arrested in Santa Rosa County for digital threats of terrorism. Jones said an officer told her a warrant had been issued for her son's arrest after authorities received an anonymous report about messages her son shared in a Snapchat group. Jones says that someone claiming to be a cousin of one of her son's classmates joined their private Snapchat group. She says that the person recorded the conversations and and reported them to the police after her son shared a popular internet meme that criticized police. A threat assessment was completed in which both local police and the school signed off on the message that it was not a threat. But 
Now her son has been arrested anyway. And when Jones asked the officers who ordered the arrest, she said an officer told her it was the state. It's also important to note that this arrest comes only three weeks after Jones filed a whistleblower lawsuit against the state of Florida. And lastly, surprising no one, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was outed as being bought and paid for this week in a breaking ProPublica story. For more than two decades, Thomas has accepted luxury trips, the latest worth roughly $500,000, virtually every year from Dallas businessman and Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow, without disclosing them. He has vacationed on Crow's superyacht around the globe. He flies on Crow's Bombardier Global 5000 jet. He has gone with Crow to the Bohemian Grove, the exclusive California all-male retreat, and to Crow's sprawling ranch in East Texas. And Thomas typically spends about a week every summer at Crow's private resort in the Adirondacks. The extent and frequency of Crow's apparent gifts to Thomas have no known precedent in modern history of the United States Supreme Court. These trips appeared nowhere on Thomas's financial disclosures. His failure to report the flights appears to violate a law passed after Watergate that requires justices, judges, members of Congress, and federal officials to disclose most gifts. Thomas's shaky approach to ethics has already attracted public attention. Last year, Thomas didn't recuse himself from cases that touched on the involvement of his wife, Jenny, in efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. That's all the time we have this week. I want to thank you for joining us. If you feel you have a story that I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at Kev in Midmo or the pod's parent account at the Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from ProPublica, Pensacola News Journal, The Gazette, The Detroit Free Press, KSHB Kansas, KCUR Kansas, The Missouri Independent, KY3 Missouri, The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, NACO, The Tennessean, Yahoo News, Reuters, and Forbes. Thanks for listening. The Flyover View is a production of MidMap Media LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See y'all next week.